everyone, and welcome to the October 16th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Fols, an attorney with the Floyd Skurin Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our top stories. It's very interesting how so many people carefully shop for and investigate their next appliance or television purchase, but how so few can tell you even the brand of the hip or knee replacement that a surgeon placed inside their body. It is as though the brand of implantable device does not matter, and there seems to be an assumption that they are all the same. A bad choice certainly has consequences to the person who must undergo another painful surgery and for the third-party payor, such as a workers' compensation claims administrator, who must pay tens of thousands of dollars in medical costs to remedy the situation of a bad device. But a new Court of Appeal decision might provide some tips for claims examiners on selecting hip and knee replacement products for injured workers. The case involves a company known as Exact Tech, whose fortunes started to take off in 1994 when it inked a major deal to license and market the Optitrack knee implant based on designs by surgeons and engineers at the prestigious Hospital for Special Surgery in New York City. That alliance won Exactect instant credibility in the fiercely competitive implantable medical device industry. The Exactec knee implant was first introduced to the medical community in 2006, and it is made of titanium and a plastic called polyethylene, and was designed to be more durable and longer lasting than other total knee replacement implants. Exactec's sales shot past $124 million in 2007 about half of that generated by the OptiTrack knee system. But soon, the Food and Drug Administration issued a number of safety warnings about the OptiTrack implant. And in 2012, the FDA issued a Class I recall of the OptiTrack implant, which is the most serious type of recall, and this was due to concerns about early failure of the implant, and then in 2015, the FDA issued a Class II recall of the product due to concerns about loosening and osteolysis after the FDA received reports of a number of patients who had experienced loosening and osteolysis of their OptiTrack implants. Currently, now there are a number of class action lawsuits pending against Exactech the manufacturers of the OptiTrack knee implant that allege that the implant is defective and has caused serious injuries to patients. Now, Kaiser Health News just featured a report on what went wrong, as it reports that there were years of warnings and doubts about the durability of the OptiTrack, according to whistleblowers, and one whistleblower called it an open secret inside the company. And a whistleblower named Manuel Fuentes, a former Exactech senior product manager, testified in his deposition that pulling the product off the market around 2008 would have been the ethical and moral thing to do.
but the information the company learned about their product did little to dim its continued product sales. And from 1994 through April 2022, Exact Tech sold nearly 59,000 OptiTrack devices for use by 514 surgeons nationwide. While 95% of artificial knees should last at least a decade, surgeons had to pull out and replace many OptiTrack components, a complex operation known as revision surgery, much sooner than required by competing products. And there's an easy solution for claim adjusters and the public at large to quickly determine if there are problems with a device selected for a surgical procedure. The Food and Drug Administration runs a massive public searchable databank called MAUDE, M-A-U-D-E, and that stands for Manufacturer and User Facility Device Experience. The purpose is to warn the public of dangers linked to a given medical device or drugs. So this tool might be a good start for a due diligence investigation by a claims administrator or a injured worker to ascertain the track record of orthopedic devices they contemplate for their surgery. Manufacturers must advise the FDA when they learn their device may have caused or contributed to a death or serious injury or malfunctioned in a way that might recur and cause harm. And in employment law litigation, the Court of Appeal concluded that accrued vacation pay is immediately due upon a temporary layoff. In this case, Hyatt Hotels decided to furlough or temporarily lay off over 7,000 employees in March 2020 because of the reduction in business caused by the pandemic. One of its employees, Karen Harstein, filed a class action in Los Angeles Superior Court, asserting claims under California law for failure to pay all wages upon discharge, among other wage hour violations. After her action was removed to federal court, a judge granted Hyatt's motion for summary judgment and dismissed the action with prejudice after concluding that the furlough of Hyatt's employees was not a termination within the meaning of Labor Code Section 227.3, since there was not a complete severance of the employer-employee relationship. But the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals reversed as to the vacation pay claim in the published case of Harstein v. Hyatt Corporation. On appeal, Hyatt did not contest that it was required to pay its employees their accrued vacation pay when the employees were discharged. The question now was, when the employees were discharged, were they discharged within the meaning of California prompt payment provisions in the Labor Code? Plaintiff argued that the indefinite layoff in March 2020 was a discharge within the meaning of Labor Code Section 201A, triggering Hyatt's obligation to immediately pay accrued vacation pay. Hyatt contends that it was not required to pay accrued vacation pay until June 2020 when employees were formally terminated. The Court of Appeals noted that Labor Code Section 201 does not define the word discharge. Thus, this issue on appeal was 
whether a temporary layoff with no specified return date is a discharge for purposes of Labor Code Section 201. And the Court of Appeals noted there was no case law that addresses this question. However, the California Division of Labor Standards Enforcement, DLSE, had answered the question explicitly. In a 1996 opinion letter, the DLSE said that if an employee is laid off without a specific return date within the normal pay period, the wages earned to and including the layoff date are due and payable in accordance with Section 201. Thus, the Court of Appeals concluded that the prompt payment provision of the California Labor Code required Hyatt to pay these plaintiffs their accrued vacation pay in March 2020, and so it therefore reversed the District Court's grant of summary judgment in favor of Hyatt. And now our crime report. Bobby Gilbert Jr. of Santa Ana, the owner of B&J Tree Service, has been charged with 96 felony counts for alleged wage theft, denial of workers' compensation benefits to its employees, workers' compensation fraud, failure to pay taxes, and perjury. His office manager, Bertha Sanchez of Anaheim, has also been charged with multiple felonies for her alleged role in committing these crimes. The Department of Insurance started an investigation and identified 32 workers that were either denied the wages they had earned or workers' compensation benefits when injured on the job. And Gilbert and Sanchez both conspired together to underreport payroll to their insurance carriers by about $1.3 million, leading to about $249,000 owed to their carrier. And unpaid payroll tax to the Employment Development Department of about $141,000. The Orange County District Attorney's Office is prosecuting this case. And in another case, the Labor Commissioner's Office Criminal Investigation Unit partnered with the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office in the first criminal prosecution of a garment manufacturing business owner under the new California Penal Code Section 487M, Grand Theft of Wages, which became effective on January 1, 2022. Lawrence Lee, co-owner of garment manufacturer business Parby Incorporated DBA Fabiola, and Sue A. Park, a garment contractor who had a history of wage theft, have been arrested and arraigned on felony charges of grand theft of wages, and perjury by declaration. The Labor Commissioner said that this was the first time a garment manufacturer and garment contractor have ever been arrested for wage theft under this new law. The investigation found that Park failed to pay her workers minimum wage or overtime. She paid her workers in cash an average of $350 for more than 50 hours of work per week and failed to provide her workers with appropriate pay stubs. Park also failed to provide workers with workers' compensation insurance coverage or information about paid sex leave. Parby Incorporated identified as a wage guarantee for Park 
contracted with Park, even after the Labor Commissioner's Office notified it of alleged wage violations by Park. And both Parby Incorporated and Park were operating without required garment manufacturing registrations. Lawrence Lee also allegedly failed to provide a material information on his garment manufacturing registration application under penalty of perjury. In addition to these criminal charges, notices of joint liability were issued to Park and Parby Incorporated for their failure to provide workers' compensation coverage for their employees and other labor code violations, all in the amount of $161,738. Under the Garment Worker Protection Act, contractors, manufacturers, and brand guarantors are jointly and severally liable for the full amount. And in regulatory news, Governor Gavin Newsom vetoed the California Applicant Attorney Association-sponsored extensions of temporary disability benefits that had been passed by the California Legislature. Labor Code Section 4656 prohibits aggregate temporary disability payments for a single injury for more than 104 compensable weeks within a period of five years from the date of injury, with some exceptions. Assembly Bill 1213, if it were to have been signed by the governor, said that if a UR denial of treatment is overturned by IMR, any TD benefits paid or owing to the injured worker from the date of the UR denial until the date of the IMR decision should not be used in calculating aggregate TD limits. On October 8th, Governor Newsom vetoed this proposed law and said in his veto message that there's a lack of data to support such a change. And as National Whistleblower Day approaches, a bipartisan group of senators, led by Senator Chuck Grassley, an Iowa Republican, introduced the False Claims Amendments Act of 2023 to beef up the government's most potent tool to fight medical fraud. The bill ensures those who knowingly defraud the government cannot escape liability in cases where the government has made recurring payments on a fraudulent claim. Grassley said that the False Claim Act continues to be the single greatest tool in the fight against fraud, returning $72 billion to the taxpayers since his update to the statute back in 1986. The False Claim Act empowers the government, often with the help of whistleblowers, to recover taxpayer dollars lost to fraud from entities that defraud the government. But the U.S. Supreme Court ruling in the case of United Health Services versus United States, Escobar, has resulted in entities claiming that their obvious fraud was not material, simply because the government continued payment, thus it created loopholes for these fraudsters. The new False Claims Amendment Act of 2023 makes clear that the government's continued payment on a fraudulent claim is not dispositive evidence that the fraud was not material if the government shows other reasons exist for the payment. It also clarifies that the False Claims Act whistleblower anti-retaliation provisions applies to post-employment retaliation 
and it requires a governmental accountability office study on the benefits and challenges of enforcement efforts and amounts recovered under the False Claims Act. Last February, the Justice Department announced the successful recovery of over $2.2 billion through False Claims Act cases and a total of more than $72 billion in taxpayer money has been recovered since the 1986 update to the law. And Governor Newsom has signed AB 336, a new law that assists insurance carriers to detect contractor premium fraud. uh, Current law does not require the contractor state license board to publicly post which of three workers' compensation classifications their licensee contractors are in. This lack of transparency incentivizes intentional misclassification by unscrupulous contractors. So, they can purchase workers' comp insurance that is not appropriate for the kind of work that their employees do. This new law requires all contractor licensees to report to the contractor's state, uh, state license board their workers' compensation classification code as a condition of licensure and also requires the license board to post each licensee contractor's classification code on its website. Classification codes for specific occupations, industries, or businesses are assigned by the WCARB and approved by the insurance commissioner. Insurance companies have an option to create their own classification system and submit it to the CDI for approval, but typically they use the WCIRB's classifications. The classification codes and related rates are used to calculate the base rate of the workers' comp insurance premium. This new information will now be available on the contractor's state license board's website. However, the board is not required to verify or investigate the accuracy of the licensee's classification codes and would prohibit the board from being held liable for any misreported classification codes. The provisions of this new law are operative on July 1, 2024. And in medical news, Governor Newsom also signed a new law to reduce pharmacy errors. The California Board of Pharmacy has listed medication error as the number one violation resulting in a citation and the Institute of Medicine, the National Academies of, uh, indicates that medication errors are among the most common medical errors, harming at least 1.5 million people a year. And a high percentage of pharmacists stated that they do not have enough time to fulfill their professional functions to the extent that they believed are necessary. These pharmacists have argued that instead of providing their core pharmacy services, much of their time is instead spent performing clerical tasks and performing non-pharmacy activities on behalf of the business. The new law just signed by the governor Assembly Bill 1286 is aimed at reducing the estimated 5 million mistakes pharmacists make each year by empowering the pharmacist in charge or pharmacist on duty to report conditions to the Board of Pharmacy that present an immediate risk of death, illness, or irreparable harm to patients 
personnel, or pharmacy staff. If the store management does not resolve those conditions within 24 hours, the pharmacist in charge or pharmacist would be required to notify the Board of Pharmacy, and the BOP would then be authorized to issue an order to the pharmacy to immediately cease and desist those pharmacy operations that are affected by the conditions at issue. And the cease and desist order would remain in effect until either the executive officer or the board of the BOP determines that the conditions have been abated or for no more than 30 days, whichever is earlier. The new law also requires community pharmacies to report all medication errors to an entity approved by the Board of um, Pharmacy no later than 14 days following the date of discovery of the error, and the reports would be deemed confidential and not subject to discovery, subpoena, or disclosure pursuant to California Public Records Act. But the BOP would be authorized to publish de-identified data. And Walgreens announced it will launch on-demand virtual care this month as part of Walgreens' transformation into a healthcare company. This digital solution will provide discreet, convenient, and on-demand medical care for common health needs and make it easier for individuals to receive online diagnoses and prescriptions. At this time, insurance is not accepted for Walgreens virtual health visits, but it can be used to cover the cost of the prescriptions. In the future, Walgreens virtual health plans to accept insurance, flexible spending accounts, and healthcare savings accounts. The initial states where the new services available cover nearly half the U.S. population and half of Walgreens pharmacy customers. Walgreens plans to expand the service to cover additional conditions and markets in the near future. And in other industry news, Gradient AI, an enterprise software provider of artificial intelligence solutions in the insurance industry, announced the result of a comprehensive research study showing that AI-enabled workers' comp claims management reduced legal involvement for lost time claims by 15%. Legal involvement is a major cost driver in casualty claims, particularly in the context of lost time claims. To better understand the efficacy of AI models trained on industry data lakes, Gradient AI conducted a comprehensive study on workers' compensation claims. They say this research encompassed an analysis of over 200,000 lost time workers' comp claims collected from a diverse pool of more than 60 insurance carriers over a 10-year period. The study showed that insurers leveraging AI effectively reduced legal involvement by 15% because AI models were able to assess claim complexities, predict the likelihood of legal involvement, and provide early warnings to claim adjusters. AI mitigated the primary reasons for legal representation, which was erosion of trust between claimant and insurance adjusters over time, Fear of the unknown as claimants often seek legal counsel as a safety net when facing severe injuries or doubts about recovery. AI empowered insurers to intervene early, potentially averting costly legal engagement. 
And so that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news, our podcast, and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd Scarin, Manukian Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.